10, 9. We choose to go to the moon. Mission sequence start. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Three. Not because they are easy. Two. But because they are hard. One. Zero. KFI presents. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Cool Space News with Rod Pyle. KFI handle here. It's a uh, Tuesday, and it is time for uh, Rod Pyle with Cool Space News. Uh, Rod, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am uh, excellent, and I don't care how you are. All right, now. Uh, Very good. Hey, you know that promo uh, of uh, uh, JFK talking, making the announcement that we're going to go to the moon in this decade, uh, yeah. not because it's easy, but because it's hard, and immediately made me think of... Uh, that uh, he said this without telling the folks at NASA. I mean, that just came up in his speech. And uh, I can just imagine the folks at NASA looking at each other and going, what did he just say? What well, is it had he been discussed. I know. Is he just no, nuts? He, he had been querying his advisors saying, look, we got to do something to catch up with and bypass the Soviet Union. What can it be? So they knew something was in the offing. I think some of them just did and expect quite that big a step. But yeah, and the further we get from it, I've probably mentioned this before, but you know, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and we're soon going to be almost as far away from that landing as it was from the flight of the Wright brothers with canvas and wood. And somehow the last 50 years doesn't seem quite as impressive as that leap. So that's kind of sobering. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, but then again, uh, it's uh, it's it's much easier to go from the Wright brothers in uh, to bigger airplanes than it is landing on the moon. And the next step is uh, going to Venus, for example, uh, to put up uh, uh, some kind of a habitat. Anyway, let's just move on. It was uh, just a fun thought after uh, listening to the promo. Okay, uh, Space Force is uh, now going to be put into place <laughs> by the president. Uh, do you remember a Team America? Uh, this yes. this reminds me of Team Heck America yeah. Space Force, <laughs> with a bunch of puppet, yeah. puppets doing uh, marionettes doing some very grotesque things. Uh, it seems to me that actually it makes sense if you're talking about uh, milita- militarizing space because that really is uh, such an important part of what we're doing. It is, and and when you begin to really look at one of the books I was recently working on, I had to really delve into what satellites do for us now in terms of the commercialization of space. And it controls everything from, I mean, literally every ATM banking transaction you do has a time base that's generated from satellites, our GPS, the satellites, economics, uh, economic activity, farming, you know, tracking our submarines, even, even road traffic is all done by satellite now. So if our satellites get knocked out, we're in big trouble. And that doesn't even include the military part of it. The thing that was a little weird about this was this was the, the third major announcement coming out of the Trump administration for space directives. And it was supposed to be around orbital debris cleanup and other policy issues. And the Space Force thing was kind of a minor part of it, but Trump, as often he does, went off script and turned to this general in the front couple of rows of the VIP section and said, hey, we're going to do the Space Force thing. It's going to be a fifth branch of the military. You could take care of that for me, right, big guy? And uh, by all reports, the general said, uh, okay, sure, whatever you say. But we're already spending $22 billion a year on military space in the U.S., so this isn't like it's completely new. It's just a 
a slicing off of this from the Air Force and into a new branch. And that's going to raise some eyebrows, of course. Uh, but in reality, not much is going to change other than uh, the name of this organization. I'm thinking about how the Air Force was created out of the Army Air Corps uh, when uh, it was World War II. I mean, there was no Air Force in World War II. And it, right. and it became an Air Force. Did a whole lot change? Uh, not really. Uh, maybe a little bit more bureaucracy. And if there's going to be uh, a, another branch of the military, uh, you're talking about another bureaucracy, aren't you? Yes, and that and that's a big concern. But there's two things that differentiate this from the Air Force uh, uh, Army Air Corps decision back in '47. One is at in 1947, we knew what aerial combat was. We realized. Uh, really understood how it was going to work and what direction this new air force might take at this point space combat's still a big unknown and they haven't talked at all about what the division is between robotic and manned or unmanned spacecraft exactly what they'll be doing there's vague talk about you know orbital interdiction and protecting assets and search and rescue and maybe trying to address the potential asteroid threat but it's all pretty vague the other thing that has been parsed out is who's going to pay for it does this come out of the air force budget which is going to make them very unhappy or does it come out of the larger military budget which will make everybody unhappy or is it new money all right just uh, technically how do you uh, take out a satellite if it's a uh, geosynchronous uh, orbit twenty-two thousand miles up uh, is that fairly easy to do certainly low earth orbit is easy but how about well, way up there yeah. Low Earth orbit is easy. Higher up, you have to have a much higher energy missile, of course, and 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 more discreet aim. Um, I don't think it's been done, but it's something that that could be done with technologies on the horizon. And that's one of the concerns is that both China and Russia are developing fairly aggressive ASAT technology, and they're both developing these Mach ten hypersonic uh, hypersonic high speed strike missiles that that come in from a blister trajectory so there's a lot of concern about the growing threat from those two nations in particular which is why this is gaining some traction all right uh, let's take a break come back uh and i love this you sent this to me and uh the as you say the only system close enough for realistic exploration in the next few decades is alpha centauri four light years away i can't wait to have you tell me how we're going to look at something four <laughs> light years away and land on it uh, we'll be right back. KFI okay. AM. Uh, uh, all right. Well, don't Rod, relax. I oh, know you're going, you're getting upset here. <laughs> we'll be right back. All right. Jennifer Jones Lee. Some Amazon. KFI handle here on a uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, some of the top stories we're covering, of course, is uh, the separation of uh, the families at the border, particularly Texas. Where the president is double downing uh, or doubling down, double downing, doubling down on his statement yesterday and the $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. The tariffs may go on there by the president. All right, back we go to Cool Space News with Rod Pyle. Rod, uh, all of a sudden, we're talking about Alpha Centauri or Centauri, uh, four light years away and somehow studying it. Explain that, please. So it's something we've been looking at for a long time because it is the, the nearest star system to us. But some new results that came in from an orbiting X-ray telescope that looks at things the X-ray frequency called Chandra uh, kind of changed our view of the system. So there's three stars in Alpha Centauri. There's Proxima, which is a little red dwarf that's very radioactive, puts out a lot of radioactive uh, material about 500 times out of the sun. And we always assumed because of that star that the other two stars in the systems and their planets would also be radioactive and that it would be toxic to any potential life forms, 
if we found exoplanets there. So far, we've only found one around radioactive Proxima. But the new results of this telescope have said, no, you know, these other two stars are a lot more like our sun. One's a little bigger, one's a little smaller. But they're actually even more benign than our sun in terms of radioactivity. So if there are rocky planets near those two other stars, decent chance there might be life there if they're in the right spot. But they're really hard to spot because the stars are so bright the way we currently look for exoplanets has trouble with bright right. stars. So, so we've got to evolve the tech a bit. All right. So it's all uh, simply analyzing technology, sort of third uh, third degree separation, I would uh, guess. Uh, so actually going there and exploring and landing something on, obviously it's not going to be manned. Uh, you know, how? what's the fastest that technology will allow a spacecraft to go yeah. or in, its, in your wildest dreams? Uh, where do you go with this? <laughs> I do have wild dreams, and you're you're usually in them, which is kind of weird. That is very um, unusual. That's very discouraging. Uh, just uh, comfort. Well, very uh, uncomfortable. You know that. Yeah. Well, I wanted okay. to make your day. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's disconcerting. Two major, that's the word. Okay. Go ahead. That's the word. Two major classes of, of of ways to propel this craft. One is through conventional or somewhat better than conventional propulsion on the spacecraft, and JPL is planning something like that. And this is very rough planning, obviously. But uh, NASA JPL is planning something like that to launch maybe around 2070, and it would take 40 or 50 years to to get there. The other way, which I think a lot of people think is probably a little more realistic, at least in terms of something near term, is to use a large laser or energy beam from Earth. And you put a bunch of small spacecraft, a whole swarm of things somewhere between the size of a potato chip or a large dinner plate out in space and you direct this beam of energy at them you send them out and that can reach 20 percent the speed of light so you can get there in 20 25 years now this is obviously a flyby thing because you don't have a way using that method to slow them down once they get there but they can image and measure the dynamics of that planetary system and send that information back and four years later we got it here at earth how do you measure anything at a quarter of the speed of light you work very quickly. Yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking. Is it zips right past? Well, uh, but you're imaging on the way in, and you're you're you can very quickly measure a lot of the dynamics of the planetary system. You know, ra- radioactivity levels we've been looking for, and uh, magnetosphere, and all that. So you've got to go. Like I said, you've got to work really quickly, but it can be done. And of course, by the time we can get this thing put together, technology will have taken another giant step. But already, things are miniaturized now to the point where. Even machines that went to Mars, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that were the size of a microwave in terms of their instrumentation are down to something the size of a paperback. So it's moving really quickly in terms of miniaturization. All right, let's get a little closer to home and talk about NASA's opportunity, uh, the rover and the Martian surface. Uh, does it, is this thing, this storm uh, that's now hitting Mars, it, does, is it killing this? Is it over? Uh, it doesn't appear to be over yet. You know, so Curiosity has a nuclear battery, so it's just sitting there thumbing its nose to the storm and taking selfies and having a good time. But this storm is one of the biggest ones we've seen in decades. It's the size of North America. It's been going on for a few weeks. And it's the problem is it's just making it very dark. So Opportunity, which is already 14 years old, uses solar panels. And it's got aging batteries and aging systems otherwise. So the problem is the longer it sits there, the less and less power it has. It does go into kind of a semi-shutdown safe mode, and it'll wait out the storm and try and reach Earth after that storm passes if it's got enough power to do so. The problem is it needs to use its batteries to keep from freezing if it gets too cold, 
And if the power levels get too low, the batteries might not have enough juice to keep the thing warm enough to be able to reach out. Which means it's going to be over. But uh, when you talk about a dust storm, uh, don't don't dust storms take the dust off the panels and uh, keep them going? Usually they do. Um, Wind events are better than dust events because they don't deposit dust while they're removing it. But that generally is what has been happening. The the bigger concern is just the duration of the storm. It's not so much as building up dust on the panels at this point. It's just that it's making it so dark that it's not getting any solar power at all. So it's just sitting there starved of juice. But it's been 14 years, and this thing was only supposed to last 90 days. Yeah, so that's a pretty good return on investment. Yeah, inevitably that happens. Uh, whenever there is uh, uh, some kind of a program, some kind of a device that goes out there that's only supposed to last X number of days or months, it always goes beyond that. Is that just good PR? I think it's 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 planning for the worst case contingency, okay. but it, it's also is, you know, they have to do budget extensions every time they do these things. So you never know if you're actually going to be able to pay for a longer mission. So that's part of it, too. They can just plan for the, the minimum Got one. It. Rod, thank you. Uh, we'll thank do this so again much. next week or two. Pilebooks.com, P-Y-L-E books.com, and uh, the podcast here on KFI. And uh, there's so much to learn. Take care, Rod. Take care. Thanks. All right. I uh, love space stuff. You know, I'm a space nut.